Amen. Amen. Okay, we are in 1 Samuel chapter 23. Uh, we're picking up in verse 15 um, in our uh, um, path, but we'll read from verse 14 uh, when we begin just to, to remember the context and see how the two halves of this kind of flow together. Um, one of the great promises that God uh, gives concerning the Christian life and that he gives to the Christian is this promise of uh, entering into his rest. He calls it rest. And um, we read of it in, in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Jesus said, um, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, take my yoke upon you, which is kind of you know, an, uh, a paradox, you know, you don't think of a yoke, which signifies labor, um, and put it into the context of rest. But he said, take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest, he said, for your souls. And it's just a great call. Every one of us, um, you know, knows those verses. They're a great comfort to us when we come to Christ and we realize that his uh, intent for us is good, that he wants to bring us into this rest. Uh, all of us are familiar with the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know, he maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You know, he restores my soul, you know, and it's this great picture of, uh, of the sheep and we can picture it in our mind's eyes, just this glorious still pasture and the sheep just sitting at ease and in safety, just resting by clean, still waters and grazing in these, these pastures. And, you know, it's, we love these pictures and it's God laying out for us his will for our lives that there's this rest that he has for us. And, and yet at the same time, we read those things and our heart cries after those things. Uh, we have trouble reconciling it with our experience. Because when we think about what we go through uh, and we think about our lives at any given time, uh, there's this uh, anomaly. It doesn't fit. <laughs> Rest, pastures, <laughs> ease, you know, uh, that, that's not my life, you know. And so we're in on the one hand, our hearts, are, are, are they yearn for it. When we look at what we're going through, we say, well, where is that? And how do these things uh, work out within us? And, and, it, and it behooves us to understand understand that rest in the Christian life, though it's a promise, it doesn't necessarily happen on the first day. It does in one sense. You know, when we, when we know that our sins are forgiven and we know that we're saved, there's an inner rest. There's something that, that happens uh, wherein we know that we're saved and there's a rest in terms of, of laboring after or finding our reason for life. But the, the other side of that rest doesn't happen on the first day. And the reason for that is because there's this process that God begins doing in our lives now where he's transforming us. He begins removing everything that was and then putting in things that, that were never there, that belong there, things of himself. And in the process of that removing and that installation, there's an upheaval, there's an unsettledness, there's, there's a different type of a labor that happens uh, in our lives when we begin to experience that. In uh, Jeremiah chapter 48, I think it's chapter 48, um, it is, chapter 48, verse 11, God uh, speaks there concerning um, the nation of Moab, and he, and he speaks in this language. He says uh, to them, 
he says that I, I think I have it memorized, but let me read it to you anyways. Um, Jeremiah 48. He says, Moab. He says, Moab has been at ease from his youth, and he has settled on his lees, and has not been emptied from vessel to vessel, neither has he gone into captivity. Therefore, his taste remained in him, and his scent is not changed." And so God kind of kind of gives this picture of this Mo, this region of Moab that that's never encountered God, and so they've been kind of at their own ease. They've been settled in who they are from the time that they're young, and God calls it being settled on His lees. Now, what the lees are, uh, or, or or literally the same word is is dregs. And when they would take and they would um, stomp grapes in order to make wine. They would pour the, uh, the you know, the, 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 the crude grape juice out from the, the press and they'd pour it into the skins. And then they would let it sit. That was the process of fermenting. It was the process of aging, a seasoning, um, and the whole thing. But, but, but over time, the, the leftovers of the solids of that juice would then settle to the bottom of the vessel. And if they were left there, it would ruin the wine because it, it, they, they would grow bitter, they would begin to rot, and it would taint the flavor of the purity of the juice. And so what the winemaker would do in order to alleviate this is that he would allow the, the, the thing to settle for a couple of days, and then he would slowly pour out the contents of that uh, skin or that vessel into another vessel, carefully leaving it so that the dregs or the lees, the solids, would remain in, in that first skin. And then he would rinse those out and he'd repeat the procedure a couple of times. He'd let it settle again and then he would pour it out and he would do that until he was pretty certain that he had filtered out uh, the dregs. And the reason for that is so that the natural flavor of the solids would be removed from the newness of the wine. And what God is saying concerning the Moabites is he's saying that, listen, Moab has been settled from his youth. And the natural flavor of the old is still in him. He settled on his lees, and so the natural scent is still there. And so God's uh, you know, fix for that is that he said, I'm going to pour you out from vessel to vessel so that the dregs can be removed, the lees can be removed. And that's a process of God that he does within our lives. We come to him in salvation. And when we come to him in salvation, there's new wine in a sense that's been put into us. Christ has been put there. But there's this whole world of the old man, of the flesh and of the fall that still exists within us. And so God says, well, you know, this is good what I'm doing in you, but the old scent is still there. I still smell the flesh. I still smell the old man. And God's cure for that is that he says, I'm going to pour you out from vessel to vessel. And so though we know that his intent and reason for us is rest, that he's got a plan for us that's besides still waters, that he's going to bring us into stability and settledness, there's this time early in our walk, and sometimes he has to repeat the procedure later in our walk, that he pours us out from vessel to vessel. That there's this tossing back and forth, and, and we feel it. We feel the effects of it, and we don't understand it. But what God is doing is that he's strategically removing from our lives the dregs, the lees, the scent of the old man. 
and he's bringing us into a purity or a refinement to where there's uh, something in us that, that's of value, of great value. And so as we are in the section of David's life, this is exactly what God is doing in him. God's intent for David is to bring him into rest. God's going to bring David into his plan for him, into what God ultimately has for him. But this process that David is going through right now of being poured from vessel to vessel is painful, yet necessary and ultimately good. And it's something that every one of us does well to embrace as God brings it into our lives, because ultimately it's for our good. And it's so that when we come into our rest, there's a purity to our aroma. We want to be the aroma of Christ in the world. We don't want to be a mix of Christ and our old man. We want that dead, gone, crucified. If he's condemned it, then that means there's nothing of value in it. And so he's pouring us from vessel to vessel to see these things removed. And so this is what David is going through right now. He was in the palace, but God stirred up an evil spirit against Saul, and David was ejected, poured out from one vessel into another, gone from the palace. Then he was restored because of the intercession of Jonathan, and he's brought back, poured back into the palace again. And he's there for a little while, but God said, no, no, not done yet. He stirs up the evil spirit against David again through Saul. And now David isn't just ejected, but now he's expelled from the palace. He's fired with finality. He's told to clean out his desk. He's not coming back again, poured out again. Then David is stripped of all, and he finds himself in the cave of Adullam. And 400 men gather themselves to him. Over time, that number 400 has grown to 600. David is filled with a little bit of strength. He goes down to Keilah, and he delivers them there from a band of the Philistines that came in. But then God says to him, hey, listen, these men aren't going to protect you. You better get out. And he's poured out again. He leaves the protection of Keilah, and he goes back to the cave of Adullam. And where we left off in chapter uh, 23, verse 14, we're told now that David abode in the wilderness in strongholds and he remained in a mountain in the wilderness of Ziph, which is kind of in the southern portion of the region of Judah, the southern half uh, of the land of Israel. And it tells us that Saul sought him every day. So that's the season of David's life right now as he's being pursued as a fugitive. But God delivered him not into his hand. And so what you have simultaneously here is that you have God moving the hand of Saul against David on the one hand, and then you have God protecting David on the other hand. And it's this amazing picture of this push-pull tension of God working in David's life. He's being poured from vessel to vessel. Now, David knows that Saul is pursuing his life. David doesn't know that he's being supernaturally protected by God. And so notice what, what it says in verse 15 where we resume. It says that David saw, so what David, what was clear to David, what he could understand, was that Saul was come out to seek his life. He didn't see the hand of protection. God saw that. David didn't see the hand of protection. David just saw that Saul was come out to seek his life. So David was in the wilderness of Ziph. Wilderness means desert. And he was there in a wood. And so David is in a very dry time in his life. 
He's questioning inside of him what God is doing. Why is all of, of this happening to me? Why is it that, that you know, if, if, if Samuel came and anointed me with oil, and if there's supposed to be this great purpose for my life, and if maybe I'm going to be king, or if God has designed good, then why am I in this desert? Why is, is my life in the balances? I don't understand what's going on right now. Well, now God brings encouragement. Don't you wish God would uh, just make up his mind? Is it torture or is it comfort? God, <laughs> it's one and then the next. Well, God says, all right, here now here's comfort. So verse 16, it said that Jonathan, Saul's son, arose. And he went to David in the wood and he strengthened his hand in God. Now, the strength that David is, is given here is twofold. Number one is that Jonathan was easily able to find David. Now, that's remarkable when you think about it because Saul can't find him to save his life. You know, Saul's been looking for this guy now for quite some time. Jonathan, God leads him right to David uh, almost immediately. And that had to have been some kind of a comfort to David to just realize that, you know, if God wanted to, he could deliver me into the hand of Saul just like that, you know, but he hasn't. And so there's some realization here that God is with me. Isn't it amazing how um, sometimes when we can be going through just the absolute worst things, God has a way of coming through with just something so small, but yet it means something so significant to us. We know that it's his hand of grace in our lives. God does that for David here in the bringing of Jonathan. Notice also that uh, the way that Jonathan strengthened David is that it says he strengthened his hand in God. And what do you do with your hand? You hold something. And what is it that Jonathan is encouraging David to hold to is God. And so Jonathan comes to David and the encouragement that Jonathan brings at this time is he says, Jonathan, you or David, you need to cling to God like you've never, never have before. Like that's where your help is going to come from. Any comfort that we can bring to another human being is going to be this type of help when we encourage them to cling to the Lord. The Bible says that vain is the help of man. And, it, and that's true. Like we, we really are powerless to, to help another person um, by and large. David in one of the Psalms even, I think it's right around Psalm 132 or somewhere in, in that area of the Psalms. David realized in his own life, he wrote it in a Psalm, he says that no man cares for my soul, but Lord, in you I find refuge. And, and so Jonathan strengthens David's hand in God and he said to him, fear not, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. And you shall be king over Israel and I will be next unto you, and that also Saul, my father, knows. And so Jonathan, encouraging, prophesying over David's life, it's going to work out. You're going to be all right. And so they two made a covenant before the Lord, and David abode in the wood, and Jonathan then went to his house. <laughs> okay, comfort over. Back in the frying pan. Verse 19. <laughs> then came up the Ziphites. Now remember, he's in the wilderness of Ziph, so he's in these people's land. They recognize that he's there. They see an opportunity to capitalize on David's presence and earn some points in favor with the king. And so the Ziphites sent to Saul to Gibeah, saying, Does not David hide himself with us in strongholds in the wood in the hill of Hakilah, 
which is on the south side of Jeshimon. Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of thy soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him into the king's hand. And so these guys sell David out. They say, you come down here, Saul, we will hand him right over into your hand uh, at first chance. And Saul said, blessed be ye of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Go, I pray you, here's the plan, and prepare yet, and know and see his place where his haunt is, and who has seen him there. For it is told me that he dealeth very subtly. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides himself, and come ye again to me with the certainty, and I will go with you, and it shall come to pass, if he be in the land, that I will search him out throughout all the thousands of Judah. And so at this point, Saul realizes David is extremely crafty and elusive. He sought David a couple of times and hasn't been able to. So he says, listen, figure out exactly where he is, watch his patterns for a little while, see where he goes. And then once we figure out where he's going to be, send to me again, and we'll come down and smoke him out of whatever hole he's hiding in, and we'll grab him. And so they rose, and they went to Ziph, before Saul, but David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon. So they move and they go about five miles south to another region, another desert uh, in a more southern portion of Judah, uh, which is in the plain of the south of Jeshimon. And then Saul also and his men went to seek him. And they told David, wherefore he came down into a rock and he abode in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued after David in the wilderness of Maon. So, so Saul now takes his men. He goes down to where he hears David is. And Saul went on this side of the mountain, and David and his men on that side of the mountain. And David made haste to get away for fear of Saul. For Saul and his men compassed David and his men round about to take them. But there came a messenger unto Saul, saying, Haste thee and come, for the Philistines have invaded the land. So finally, it comes to a point where the cat and mouse uh, chase is, is coming to a head. David is on, he's trapped on one side of the mountain. Saul's on the other side of the mountain. There's nowhere for David to flee. He's being enclosed upon. And just as the curtains are kind of closing in on David's location and, and, and ultimately his safety, a message comes to Saul and to his men that there's been an invasion of the Philistines and that uh, they need to come immediately and attend to it. And, and so you see the hand of the Lord, again, providentially delivering David uh, from this um, wicked, crazy king at this point, Saul. Wherefore, David returned from, or Saul returned from pursuing after David and went against the Philistines. Therefore, they called that place Sila Hamalachach. I like that. <laughs> Which means rock of escape. And David went up from thence, and he dwelt then in strongholds at 
Engedi. And so Engedi is uh, right near the Dead Sea. It's kind of near Masada. It's a very um, barren land in the one sense. It's in the middle of just sandy desert. But uh, Engedi is a beautiful fountain. There's a waterfall there. There's a spring, and it's enclosed by uh, kind of these natural cliff barriers. And David finds a stronghold there as God uh, takes him out of this, again, season of running from Saul, and he gives to him a retreat. Uh, now in this little paradise in the middle of a desert, as David dwells in Engedi, and so uh, um, uh, uh, an episode with Saul followed again by a season of rest, and we jump right back in verse tw- uh, chapter twenty-four into the next season of um, fire. It says that it came to pass when Saul was returning from following the Philistines. That it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. So Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, these would be the elite, and he went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepcoats, by the way, where was a cave, and Saul went in to cover his feet. Basically, that's you know, nice politically correct language for Saul had to relieve himself and uh, needed to find a private place to uh, make his feet invisible for a minute. And it says that David and his men remained in the sides of the cave. So, so Saul walks into the very cave where David and his men are hiding uh, while they're there and embarrasses himself in, in front of them. And it says that the men of David said unto him, Behold, they whisper, I'm sure, the day of which the Lord said unto you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it shall seem good unto thee. Then David arose, and he cut off the skirt of Saul's robe privily. Now, no idea how this went went about or what the um, layout of the cave was where David was able to do this, but in some way he was able to sneak up to where Saul's robe was, take his knife and just cut the very border of his garment off. Um, and we'll see why he did that in, in just a moment. And, and, and so it says, it came to pass afterward that David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And so David retreats from this um, this little thing, and he's got a plan. He knows what he, he's going to do with this, and it seems to him that it's a good idea. It, it's a very uh, innocent and harmless way in his mind to kind of prove to Saul that he has no evil intent towards Saul and that Saul's wasting his time in trying to uh, kill David. But a funny thing happens that as soon as he walks away with this little piece of Saul's um, robe in, in his hand, that conviction grips his heart. That There's something that the Holy Spirit knocks upon and says, David, that wasn't the right thing to do. And it says that his heart smote him. Now, if you're a Christian here, you know exactly what that means. You know, we do, sometimes we do something, we say something, we act upon something, we sometimes move, we make a decision about something that seems so innocent in our mind. And and there's really nothing wrong with it. There's no scripture that says that we, we did anything wrong, but the Holy Spirit just does something inside of us. There's a twisting and, and we think, oh, you know, what is that? And, and, and it's just the Lord saying you did something wrong there. What is it? 
that 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 was wrong about what David did here in cutting off the 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 border of Saul's skirt. In in that culture and under God's system, the border of the skirt was a symbol of the authority of the wearer of the robe. You recall that the garments of the priests, they were to have, the borders of the skirts were to have um, a, a blue lining or a blue uh, um, fabric that went around them and then there was a bell and a pomegranate and it spoke of the heavenly authority that God had given to, uh, to those priests and those rulers. And so the border of the garment was the authority. When Jesus was acting in his ministry and he was on a particular day moving through a very crowded marketplace on his way to lay hands upon a, a certain ruler's daughter, there was a woman that had an issue of blood. And for 12 years she had sought with every resource that she had to have this thing addressed. She had gone to every doctor, every physician. She had tried every form of therapy. To no avail, this, this hemorrhaging was continuing within her life. And in a last-ditch effort of hope, she makes her way through the feet of this crowded marketplace, and she says to herself, if I can just but touch the border of his garment, I know that I'll be healed. And she does so, she touches it, and she, she immediately is healed as soon as she touches the border of his garment. And it tells us that Jesus perceived then that virtue had gone out of him. And he said, who touched me? You guys, hopefully you know the story. And he calls this woman forward. He exposes her in the midst of the, the, the crowded market. And he bids her to testify. What happened? And she tells him, and Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has made you well. You know. But the border of the garment, the thing that she touched, it was the place of authority. Why did she say, I'll touch the border of his garment? Because it was the authority that he carried. And so what David does here symbolically is that he takes a stab, he, he makes a cut, an incision upon the authority of Saul in a subtle, backhanded, and invisible way. And it grieves the Holy Spirit. David understands that though Saul is under judgment, though Saul is under discipline, though Saul is not right with God, in the very way that he's behaving within his life. David knows that Saul is still to be respected as the man who wears the crown and occupies the thorn. And that David has no right to lay a hand upon his authority or to undercut it or to take a stab at it, even though Saul is under that discipline and under that judgment. Notice as David goes on and he expresses this with his own mouth. It says, he said unto his men, in verse 6, he says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch forth my hand against him, seeing, listen, that he is the anointed of the Lord. So David stayed his servants with these words and suffered them not to rise against Saul. But Saul rose up out of the cave... And went on his way. You say, well, wait a minute. This, this actually isn't true. I mean, Saul really isn't the anointed of the Lord anymore. The Bible already tells us that God withdrew his spirit from Saul and his presence from Saul. And David is the one that's been anointed. Samuel came to him. And David has every justification here to not only cut the border of Saul's garment, but even to kill him. 
He could claim self-defense. He could say, hey, I already know what's going to happen. Samuel has kind of laid this out, and everybody knows that God is finished with Saul, but he doesn't do that. He looks at his men, and he says, no. He's wearing the crown. He's still got the robe. It's not within the right or power of my hand to take his life from off the earth. And as long as Saul is King Saul, listen, guys, then he is the anointed of the Lord. If not the anointed of the Lord to rule over the nation of Israel, he absolutely is the anointed of the Lord in my life right now to bring forth and produce what it is that God wants to bring forth and produce within my life. Now, why is that important? Because every one of us in this room right now has a Saul in our life, whether they be right with God or not, whether they be truly anointed of him or whether or not they be even saved people. Every one of us right now has a Saul in our life that is the anointed of the Lord to be the instrument to produce in us the character that God wants to produce in us. It might be a spouse. It might be an acquaintance. It might be a boss. It might be a friend. It might be a family member extended. It might be a brother, sister in Christ that just drives us nuts, you know, beyond what we can imagine. Or it could be any other number of things, apropos to our circumstances and what we're going through. But God places people in our lives in order to bring forth the things that need to be brought forth and to grind off the things that need to be ground off in our lives. And we are fools if we remove ourselves from underneath the influence of that Saul, of that circumstance of whatever that is. The reason why we're fools is because, first of all, we're frustrating the grace of God. We're frustrating the plan of God to do good things for us in it. We're throwing a stumbling block in our own progress. Thus, we're fools. The other reason why we're fools is because God is relentless in his cause to do what he sees needs to be done in our lives. And so what that means is that if we remove ourselves from underneath the hand of a Saul, guess what? God's going to have to raise up another Saul at another time in the future in order to accomplish the thing that he's trying to accomplish now. One of the seven habits of highly effective people, according to the author of the famous book, is do it now. That's one of the seven habits of highly effective people. And if God is doing it now in your life, through an uncomfortable circumstance or person or whatever is happening in your life, you do well to let God do what he wants to do. Now, don't cut it off. David realizes, sensitive to the smiting of his own heart, that for me to remove myself from under this oppression, no matter how painful it is, is to delay future pain or to frustrate spiritual progress. And David says, I don't want to do either one of those things within my life. When it's God's will and timing to remove Saul from my life, God will remove Saul from my life. But until then, I must endure the flame of this affliction and let God do what God's going to do.
This is a remarkable testament to David's faith at this point. David is becoming sensitive to the leading of the Lord. That's what this whole smiting of the heart thing indicates and symbolizes. Is that no longer is it taking mere circumstances, but David is becoming sensitive to the leading of God. It says again in the Psalms, it says, don't be like a stubborn mule that needs a bit and a bridle in its mouth and needs to be yanked and pulled in order to go where it's supposed to go. But rather, instead, be sensitive to the leading of God's eye. What does that mean? It means that we are so sensitive to what God's doing and where God is that when we see God look in a certain direction, we are already inclined to go where God is looking. Big difference, right? Between being, you know, no, you're going to go this way. No, I don't want to go that way. I want to go that way. You know, that's our, our stubborn dregs. <laughs> no, I want to go that way. Sanctification, holiness, growth, and the fruit of that in our life is when we can see, God, I can see what you're doing in this. I see the writing on the wall. I understand. And you know what, Lord? Do it. Do, do it. If you have to do open heart surgery, Lord, do it. If you have to crush me under the hand of this individual, do it. If I need to be humbled in the circumstance that I'm in right now, Lord, do it. Do what you've got to do within my life. I would rather be in your will in pain than anywhere else in perfect comfort. To be by the still waters and in the green pastures, when it's God's will for our lives at that season to be in the furnace, is folly. Because you won't enjoy the green pastures and the still waters. Inside, you'll know it's not where you're supposed to be. Let God do in his time what he's going to do. And he'll bring us to where we need to be when we need to be there. Verse 8. David therefore arose afterward. And he went also out of the cave. And he cried after Saul, saying, My Lord the King. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth, and he bowed himself. And David said to Saul, Wherefore, or why, hearest thou men's words, saying, Behold, David seeks your hurt. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how that the Lord had delivered you today into my hand in the cave. And, and some even bade me to kill thee. But my eye spared thee, and I said, I will not put forth my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, notice the endearment with which David addresses Saul. See, yea, see, and he holds it up. The skirt of thy robe in my hand. Now imagine Saul at this point. He sees David holding that up, and Saul looks down, picks up, you know, the Christopher just sees it ripped off. He looks back. Imagine the emotion. Imagine what comes over Saul as he sees this in David's hand and he knows that there's no other way that David could have that in his hand other than that David could have potentially killed him. All of this just strikes Saul all in this moment. I could have done this, but I killed thee not. Know thou and see that there is neither evil nor transgression in my hand and I have not sinned against thee Yet you hunt my soul to take it. The Lord judge between me and you, and the Lord avenge me of you, but my hand shall not be upon you. David says, this is my covenant, my word, is that, you know, God judge between us, 
but you will not die at my hand. If you're going to die, Saul, it's not going to be because of me. As saith the proverb of the ancients, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be upon thee. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom dost thou pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. You're, you're spending all of your time and resources chasing someone who's got no malintent towards you at all. The Lord therefore be judge and judge between me and you and see and plead my cause and deliver me out of your hand. And it came to pass that when David had made an end of speaking these words unto Saul, that Saul said, Is this thy voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and he wept. He begins to cry. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have rewarded me good, whereas I have rewarded you evil. And you have showed this day how that you have dealt well with me. For as much as when the Lord had delivered me into your hand, you killed me not. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go well away? Wherefore the Lord reward thee good for what you have done unto me this day. And now behold, I know well that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in thine hand. Swear now, therefore, unto me by the Lord that you will not cut off my seed after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. Promise me, David, that, that when you become king, so can you imagine being David, hearing this come out of Saul's mouth at this point? He's got to be dumbfounded. He's thinking, man, this was a glorious plan. This worked way better than I could have thought. You know, This guy's ready to hand me the crown. And so David swore unto Saul, and Saul went home, but David and his men got them up into the hold. So David, having no home at this point, just goes back into the to the stronghold where he was. Now, David at this point is thinking, this is awesome. I, I, I mean, okay, my heart smote me, but the ends justify the means. I mean, this is great. Saul has just completely done a 180. He wept. He showed true repentance. It showed, it, it got through to him. He, he said that he's not going to hurt me. He told me I'm going to be the king. You know, this is, this is the best thing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Turn the page. Just for, just for a second. Go to chapter 26 for just a moment. Just, just read verses 1 and 2 with me here. It says, And the Ziphites, remember them? The inhabitants of the wilderness of Ziph, came to Saul, to Gibeah, saying, Doth not David hide himself in the hill of Hekilah, which is before Jeshimon? Same place. Then Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having 3,000 chosen men of Israel with him to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. Listen, guys, God's got you in a crucible. Guess where you're going to be? In a crucible. <laughs> you can't outsmart God. You can't outplan him. You can't outwit him. You can't fight against him and win. What he wants to bring forth in our lives, he will bring forth in our lives. 
And anything we do to try to take the pressure off or alleviate it is just a delaying of what will come around again. This proves to elongate David's season of suffering because he ends up a few chapters later right where he was back when he started in this whole thing. Amazing, isn't it? Now, just two verses, and then I want to just close out with or one verse of chapter um, 25. Just the first verse, and then I want to close out with a thought, and we'll be done. It says in verse 1 that Samuel died, and all the Israelites were gathered together, and they lamented him, and they buried him in his house at Rama. And so probably David went to this as well. Uh, you know, a funeral such as this was kind of like a safe time. You know how that is, right? Like, you, you know, when a family just is like completely ransacked, there's been a wretched divorce and bitterness, but then a, one of the patriarchs or someone dies and, you know, everybody goes to the funeral and everybody gets along for a day, you know, because this is bigger than our, our, our petty skirmish here. And so David probably at Rama for this, but then it says uh, after that closing sentence that David arose and he went down then to the wilderness of uh, Paran. And so David then leaves Ramah and he goes back into uh, the strongholds there in the wilderness. Now, um, what I want to do in, in closing here is I just want to read to you um, a list that I made here of all the places that David has been in the past couple of months of his life. How, how many in here have ever had a season of their life where they moved several times in a short span? You know, like, you know, you, you know, inside of like three years, you moved like three times or something like that. And, and you think, man, I just can't wait to be settled in the whole thing. I, I just, I'm going to read to you all the places David lived inside of a, a, a period of a couple of months. He went from Gibeah of Saul to Ramah to Naioth to Nob, to Gath, to Adullam, to Moab, to the forest of Hereth, to Keilah, to the wilderness of Ziph, to Jeshimon, to the wilderness of Moan, to Engedi, up to Ramah, and then down to the wilderness of Paran. <laughs> this, has been, this has been David's life, and we don't know exactly how long. I mean, the, the whole span of David's few uh, um, wanderings spans, you know, seven years or something like that. So we don't know, like, the exact time frame of all of this. But David is a man on the run, and what his life represents and reflects right now is a roller coaster. In fact, if you were to take a map, and you don't have to do this yourself, you can Google it, and, you know, the first time I ever did this, I had to do it myself. Now you can just Google something like the wanderings of David or something, and you can actually see a map of this. But if you look at it and you follow the arrows, it literally is a roller coaster. He goes north and then south and then north and then south and then north and then south and then north. I mean, it literally follows that progression. He's like the conductor's wand. You know, He's just going, I'm up, I'm down. I'm up, I'm down. If you look at the map and you actually trace the, the, the path that David would take to go to these various places, and then you look at it from a bird's eye perspective, it looks like a roller coaster. I, just literally like what you would see. If, you know, so David is in this roller coaster of a life at this point. So what's a roller coaster? A roller coaster is a series of fast ups and downs lefts and rights, windings and curves that seemingly goes nowhere, you end up where you started at the beginning. That's what a roller coaster is. 
<laughs> and, and that is exactly what is going on in David's life right now. If he were to describe his life at this season in one word, he would say that it's a roller coaster. Now, let me ask you guys, leaving David out of the picture for a minute and just letting the lens of that zero right in on your life. Have you ever thought concerning your own life or concerning more specifically your Christian life or your Christian experience or your relationship with God that it looks more like a roller coaster than anything else? I'm up with the Lord today. Things are good. I'm down with the Lord this day. Things are horrible. I'm back up with the Lord. God's doing something in my life. There's a little bit of hope. I'm back down. Things are, I'm good. I'm on the straight and narrow. I can see where I'm going. Things, whoosh, I'm left. Oh, I shouldn't be here. You shift back. I'm going to go back to the things. You go right, you know. I'm now I'm too far to the right. You know, the things aren't right. And it's just up, down, left, right, circular thing. We feel like I'm getting absolutely nowhere. Lord, where's the promise of your rest? I know that there was a long span of my Christian experience where this is the word that I would use, in fact, did use to describe what it was like. It's a roller coaster. I got saved, and man, it was like that. The view is so incredible. Like life is, man, I'm saved. I'm, I know the Lord. And then right down, you know. Because all of the, 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 the life of the old man just rises up. All the old habits just rise up with vengeance and say, no, I'm going to dominate your life, you know. And you're like, oh, man, I was saved, but I blew it, you know. And you're down, you know. It's like, oh, I, I ruined it. I had one chance, eternal life, and I blew it. You know, I couldn't do it, you know. But God doesn't quit because he's faithful and, you know, he... he he brings us back up again. And I remember what that was like. You know, I'd go to church and I'd hear the word of God and it was like a baptism. It was like, like refresh. It was like hitting reset on my life. I felt like, okay, God, you're with me. You forgave me. I feel your presence. I've heard your word. And it's like, oh, I'm, up by, I'm up here. But then I'd go home. The week would begin. Life happens have a drink or something with some friends, think it's no big deal, like this is nothing, but one would become three, and oh, oh it's just once, you know, it's no big deal, but then, you know, and oh God, where are you? You're gone. I blew it. I can't find you. Where are you in my life? But it would come back around again and go to church. Things would happen. There'd be a breakthrough victory over certain sins, you know, there would be, you know, and you just come back up and you're up on this thing or you go to a retreat, you know, you're back up on top and God speaks to you. He comes to you like, man, you're still with me, Lord. But then I'm not serving. I'm not living up to my own standards. I keep blowing it. God, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Satan's right there. He's beating us over the head with everything that we've done and everything that we are. And there's just this roller coaster. And then we learn to serve. Okay, I'm serving God. I'm doing okay. I'm serving. I'm doing, I'm doing good. But then, well, I'm not serving enough. Or the quality of my service. Or God's not blessing my service. Or I'm moving backwards. So I'm down. You know, and then, you know, we kind of grow through that. We get past that. And then it's circumstances. Well, my circumstances are really good. I'm doing good at work. I'm doing good with my wife. I'm doing good with my kids. Things are good. Then lose my job, fighting with my wife, right back down. God, where are you? What have you done? What did I do? God, help. I'm forsaken, you know. And, and, and there, there's this roller coaster of experiences that we have 
in, in our Christian life, you know. And I did that for years, and it was hell. I get sick on roller coasters. I don't do well there. And I felt spiritually sick because it was like this on again, off again, up and down thing, you know. So what, what's the story with the roller coaster? How did I, how did I get victory? Because I don't feel like that anymore. I don't feel like this roller coaster like shift. And that's not because I'm perfect. It's not because I don't stumble. It's not because I have it all together. I have problems and trials and a life like anyone else that has complications and things, but I don't sense the roller coaster. So what was the story with the roller coaster? Why the roller coaster? For me, and this maybe is you, maybe it isn't, but for me, part of it is that I was living in what I would call a state of graw. And what graw is, is a combination of grace and law. Meaning that I felt like, okay, I know I'm saved by grace, but that's kind of too good to be true. And so though I'm saved by grace, I know that I have to still, you know, be putting my best foot forward and doing the best that I can if I expect to have favor with God. And so I could receive grace. That was mountaintop stuff. But anytime it was dependent on me, it would bring me right down into the, into the valley. Because the Bible says that in our flesh, in our very best, we bring nothing but filthy rags to the table. And that doesn't mean that what we do isn't important and that we can live like whatever we want. But we can never add to perfection. And what we've been made in Christ is perfect. And so when God says, I see you through the lens of Christ, his favor upon our lives is not based upon how good or how bad we're doing. And when we get set free from performance-based Christianity and we live exclusively in faith-based Christianity, Lord, I am right with you because of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Then how I feel or how I'm performing doesn't make a difference in terms of my, or the quality of my relationship with God. That's constant. And so I rise above the way that I feel. Another thing that helped me, not only getting victory over Grah, was when I realized what it means when it says that we walk by faith and not by sight. I had to come personally to a place where my relationship with God was not based upon my feelings, how I feel. Well, I feel saved today because I had a great church service or God spoke to me or I went to a retreat or I served or he blessed the Bible study or whatever. And so I feel saved. I feel like God is pleased. But then on another day, I don't feel saved today. I didn't get good sleep. I ate too much. You know, I, I, I stumbled. I yelled at someone. I'm terrible witness at work. I'm grouchy. I don't feel saved today. God, you must not be pleased. God set us free from feelings. We don't walk by feelings. We walk by faith. And so to get victory over feelings is an essential part of getting off the roller coaster. Another thing that helped me was the word of God. I, I realized that God is the Lord of the roller coaster. That verses like Peter, there's a verse in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, um, that says this. It says, um, but, the, but the God of all grace who has called us unto his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after that you have suffered a while, make you perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. And I realized, you know what, suffering and this whole pouring from vessel to vessel and this whole thing, it's part of the experience. And God is sovereign over it, but that he's going to bring me to a place of stability. He's the Lord of this roller coaster. 
And he's doing something in my life through it. And it began to make me pray, God, I'm waiting for that time when there's just a stability in my life. There's a verse in Matthew. I'm sorry, it's in Luke. It's Luke chapter 3, verse 5. And it's John the Baptist speaking of what Christ would do when he comes. And he says this. He says, every valley shall be filled. Okay, a valley is a low point. And he says the valleys will be filled. And every mountain, mountain's a high point, right? Every mountain and hill will be brought low. The crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. That was a promise prophesying the ministry of Christ. He fills the valleys, he flattens the mountains, he makes the crooked straight, and he makes the rough places smooth. And I read that and I realized, God, you're going to do that in my life. Right now, it's hills and valleys. It's crooked, it's twists and turns, it's rough, there's rough patches and the whole thing. But by faith, I believe that, God, you're going to bring me to a place where my walk is not up and down, left and right, all over the place, but where there's just a consistent steadiness in my walk with you. Not walking by feelings, not highs and lows. It's just steady. Lord, I'm walking with you. There's a relationship. That's what he's doing. He's bringing us to that place. But the roller coaster is part of the process to get there. It's important. Another thing that set me free from the roller coaster was when I began to realize that though in the acute segment of where I was at, there were ups and downs. In the broader, more obtuse picture of my walk, there was growth. Meaning, if I looked at my life from the day to day, or even the week to week, there was this roller coaster up and down all over the place. But if I looked at my life over the span of a year or two years, I could see, but I've grown. I'm, I'm, I'm different today than I was a year ago. I'm not the same as I was two years ago. And that began to give me hope. To realize that though right now it seems like I'm not doing too good, God, you must be with me because there is growth going on in my life. And so through the roller coaster, God teaches us things and he gives us glimpses of what he's doing and ultimately where he's bringing us to is that place where, like Peter says, we're established, strengthened, and settled. God's going to do that for David and he's going to do it for you and me. It's what he's doing. It's what he does. Though we're being poured out from vessel to vessel, the purpose is that the dregs are left behind and that there's steadiness in our walk with the Lord. Essential. Don't take yourself off the roller coaster. Stay in there. I mean, you know, get victory over it. <laughs> Don't live there forever. <laughs> Don't cut off the border of Saul's robe. Don't do something to take the pressure off. Let the pressure do its work. Let the coal be turned into a diamond. Let the clay be fashioned into a vessel of honor. Let the wine be purified to its most refined place. Let the gold have all of its impurities burned out of it. It's 